Episode 17, Michael Swanson is running for Congress. For those of you who are keen observers, you'll notice we missed episode 16. Well, there's a reason for that. I feel so strongly about what Michael is attempting to do that I feel it is worth encouraging you to stop what you're doing and take a listen. Michael Swanson currently lives in the Bloomington Normal area and he is running for Congress. By all traditionally measurable standards, Michael is the underdog. However, I think we need to reframe how we measure political aptitude. In the following conversation, Michael goes deep on a number of issues and provides a well-thought-out position, not just a collection of talking points from the national news. I think it's important to listen to this conversation and ask yourself two questions. Why are people like Michael Swanson feeling compelled to run for office? And why won't the incumbent entertain the same level of conversation? Surely, there has to be a reason. We are live. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Keep Your Day Job podcast. Today I am joined by Michael Swanson, who is a local central Illinois person, but he is also running for Congress, which is the larger reason why we decided to have him on. So um, hello and welcome, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. I absolutely appreciate uh, you taking the time. For sure. So um, let's go ahead and get started Give us some background on your, like, I've read your bio on your site, and you've got a really interesting background. So fill in the audience who's never heard of you before. So obviously, your name's Michael Swanson. Uh, I grew up in a military family. My dad uh, worked in the Air Force for 26 years. Um, I like to joke that it was his second marriage because of how, much, how committed he was to his job. Um, and my mom... She worked as well, so she's about as working class as they come. Uh, she did that to help support the income because obviously our military members or enlisted, enlisted members are severely underpaid. Um, so growing up in the military, I've had quite a bit of background in like experience different cultures from living in Alaska and you know experiencing Hmong culture. Um, and you know, people of Asian American, Pacific Islander, and all all across. It's been a great experience. Um, following that, we moved to Illinois in 2013, where we lived in Metro East St. Louis and O'Fallon. Um, graduated from high school there, went to college at SIU Carbondale, where I studied aviation management. Uh, got out, moved up to Springfield, and worked the first salary job that I ever had. Um, <laughs> And that, that, that was really kind of like a cornerstone because it was an office job. Um, so, you know, going to work, going for 8, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., uh, five days a week and, you know, making an incredible salary, but, you know, not feeling entirely prepared for the job, which, I mean, that, that's on me. I could have <laughs> done a lot better on uh, preparing myself for the skills in there, uh, but I didn't miss. Um, following that, I... I saw an opportunity with a regional airline to join on to be a flight attendant. So I went and I, I took the three hour drive to drive up to Chicago to, um, to Schaumburg and I applied, I interviewed, um, I got the job and that became my first union job ever was working as a flight attendant. Um, and honestly that helped empower my belief in what uh, unionization efforts can do to help the working class people. Um, 
unfortunately, like because it was a regional airline, it didn't pay as well. So it couldn't meet the expectation of uh, the airline wanting us to live in base to help make scheduling a lot easier for ourselves as well as the company. Um, so I left that and then I took, and, I, and that's when I moved up here to Bloomington. So I took a job with the airport here. Um, great staff, amazing people. Absolutely love the time that I spent working with them uh, in their operations department. Uh, and that was about the time, this was in early 2020, so COVID-19 hit. Industry started to fail, uh, went down, needed massive amounts of bailouts uh, to help keep the industry afloat. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get the job to be to come on full time. There was very, very strong competition and showing uh, in that applicant pool. And that ended up making me work for Walmart. Um, that was the first place that called it offered me a job. So I went worked there for about seven months. So everyone's got their opinions on what what Walmart working is like. Um, and then, unfortunately, like didn't stay in that job too long either. And now I work for a restaurant um, here on the east side of town. And, you know, I'm making I'm making the money to make my bills and I'm really happy with it right now. Uh, but, you know, having decided to start the campaign in January, that's been the start of where uh, me finally trying to find balance and time in my schedule to make it work. So yeah, I, I think that's probably a good generalization of where I'm at. <laughs> no, I think that's helpful because there's two items that I want to follow up on um, that I think probably informed how you're running your campaign now. First one being travel, right? I I traveled to Italy for graduate school and I had never left the country other than going to Canada before that. And it absolutely turned my world upside down, changed the way that I mm -hmm. see America as a country and politics, especially. So um, how, how has travel sort of informed your views on the world? So I, I guess there's a twofold answer to this because one, because of being in a military family and then two, being a flight attendant. Um, so with, with the military backgrounds, um, you know, the, you, you get this dream sheet that is how, you know, pretty much most of the branches work. It, they give your family a dream sheet of all the bases that are open and available for your family to move to for your, your service member's job. Um, so that's basically you telling the Air, the Air Force saying, hey, I want to go to this base first, second, third, fourth. It's basically a rank choice. Um, that's basically a suggestion that's saying, hey, we want to do this, but it's not a guarantee of what you get. So because of that, and based on, you know, the operational needs of what the Air Force needed my dad to do, we stayed on the Pacific Coast uh, for pretty much the entire time that um, we, like, my dad was in the Air Force. So, or at least for the time that I was live in that segmentation of timeline. Um we spent six years in Alaska, where I think a lot of my diversity culture was uh, pretty much set up for me, um, mainly because it's a it's a very ethnically diverse state for having uh, native native Alaskans, indigenous Eskimos, um, having Asian American Pacific Islanders, people from other Asian countries as well is amazing. Um, <laughs> It helped me develop friendships with people that I probably would have never otherwise seen in my life um, and experienced them uh, very, very grateful to have had. Um, and then with the fold of being a flight attendant, being and working in a regional, you tend to go to smaller airports. And I, I kind of made that a bit of a goal with 
what I wanted to do with that job was to try to see as many places as possible. Um, I didn't use, I didn't really get to utilize a lot of the time that I had off from work. So a lot of the time was obviously from overnights on trips. Um, previously, I'd only been to a small handful of states and then the job actually helped me like see more states that I'd never seen before. So like I, I went for an overnight to like Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is a city I probably would have never otherwise set foot in my life, um, mm -hmm. which is a great city. <laughs> Uh, didn't unfortunately didn't get a lot of opportunity to explore that one um, but it, in the general sense of like the for your question is just like it's tra travel helps inform people so much and you know getting to experience different cultures you get to realize how beautiful the world is and the way it is if you just look at you know how people live within you know their their region their locality what they make of it um, and then you know, bringing that back home as a piece of you as a mosaic, essentially, of in that experience. Yeah, I really love you using that term mosaic. I think it's very interesting. And I think what you just described with the diversity of travel experience you had um, was driven a lot by work. And I would say, right. you know, one of the most informative jobs that I ever had was when I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona, I worked at a, a gas station in car wash. And so mm -hmm. um, you know, I was confronted firsthand with the immigration issue. Uh, you know, I learned so much about the people I work with and, and how they're able to survive on the salary that we earned. I learned so much about the customers who come into the store and the, you know, the, the disconnect between the classes of people who serve and the classes of people who purchase. And so when you talk about that regional airport, I can only imagine the amount of air quotes flyover country that you ended up in. And I think in terms of formative experiences and learning about the country where it is today, I don't know that you can name a better, <laughs> name a better way to do it. So, yeah, honestly, because like, in, at least in the sense of the aviation industry is like, if you work for a regional, you're, you're guaranteed to see more of these smaller airports versus working for the main line, where you're going to get bigger cities and more, more than one case. Um, like even in, amongst international destinations, like one of the, like I went to Oaxaca, Mexico, um, as one of my overnights. And I wish I could have stayed longer because there's a lot to do in Oaxaca. Um, but at the same time, it's like, there's, I, like, I was like checking them off as I was going to them. It's like, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Oaxaca was the first international place that I got to go and just, um, you know, getting to be around more people that I've, would have never otherwise gotten the chance to be around still made a formative experience for me in that right absolutely so then we flash forward and here you are living in the bloomington normal area now um what do you think what's your take on the area so <laughs> you know like growing up in the military you kind of never get used to immediately living where you live um the, the average move typically happens about three years after your last move happens. So it, it took me a good minute to actually get used to actually living here. Like it's finally set in within like the past few months that it was just like, I could see myself living here for quite a while. Um, not, well, we could get into the economic reasons of why that kind of helps solidify that, but uh, ju just for, you know, the, this sense of I've moved here, this is where I am. And, you know, having to take this inventory, it was like, 
is this a place where I could see myself living for a longer time? Because as a military kid, you don't get that option. You can't fully, you know, exercise that ability to say, I want to go move somewhere else because, you know, that decision is already going to get made for you. Like I've had to leave behind multiple friends, um, which is why I'm grateful for social media as a tool because it's helped me stay connected to them. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're leaving these friendships that can go any which direction you can imagine. Um, and, you know, coming here now and building these new relationships, it's something that I'm now having to face the reality of now they can be in my life for as long as I want them to be. Um, and as long as they want me to be in their life as well. Um, Cause I'm not a creep. <laughs> I try not to be. Um, <laughs> That's good. It's a good qualification. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think that's probably a good standard across the board. Just don't be a creep to anybody. Yeah. Um, but I, like, I, and I hope that makes sense in the way that it, I've put that is that, um, you know, I, I'm getting used to the idea of staying in one spot now because yeah. it's something that I actually have a full control over in my agency. Yeah. And I think our area is unique in that someone like myself is similar to you. I've traveled around a lot, not as a military kid, but, you know, just through life. And I've chosen to come back here because I see the perks of this area. Um, and I think that dichotomy between people who want to be here because they've made their life a certain way. And then we've got the other side of, of, of the coin where people are here. I mean, we knew a lot of folks got uh, moved from the projects up in Chicago down to here. And so the economy here to me is, it's really interesting because you've got folks who are, you know, living and working well beyond their means and very comfortable. And then you've got people who are dealing with the same struggles as the people who are catching three buses to go work at a footlocker in Chicago. Um, right. So, so labor is one thing that's really interesting to me. And so if we're changing topics, I mean, you were quoted recently, was it a GLT article or a pentagram? It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if you want to introduce it, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Right. And so uh, what happened? And honestly, like preceding it, this, this entire year with respect to labor has been very interesting, right? We've had the conversation about the $15 wage at a national level. We've had uh, pandemic relief at a national level. Um, we've got subsequent unemployment insurance that is now becoming an issue as a result of the way we handled pandemic relief originally. And right. then at the local level, we're dealing with workers' right issues, like what happened at Greentop. And now the most recent issue is what is going on with wages and, and, and service industries claiming that they cannot find employees no matter how much they pay. So um, what I found out about you kind of getting mixed into this was post green top article um, talking about these businesses who are claiming that they can't find anyone to work no matter how much they pay. Them. Yeah. And I, I think that's just in the general conversation of like how we value labor. Um, cause there, there's a certain method I think that, you know, one side tends to favor versus others. And I think that's human capacity versus human asset. Um, some people see labor as just heat, heat signatures, bodies in the door, you know, things that are making widgets for X amount of dollars an hour. And then there's people like me who see that worker as a human and realize that, you know, their job is not their life. It's a facet that helps them live their life. Um, 
And, you know, that's something that has to be respected in that right, because as we've seen with this pandemic, it really shows you who cares about the people that work for them. Um, Because like if I if I was a billionaire, like I say this constantly, if I was a billionaire, I wouldn't be a billionaire because (laughs) all that money is going back to people who actually make it matter. Um, Because like I wouldn't I couldn't be a millionaire in that same right without the workers that would work under me in that in that circumstance. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't tend to realize. And like sometimes even CEOs don't tend to realize is that, you know, that, that surplus that's coming off of your, your cost margins, like you're taking that away and that should be reinvested back to the people that work for you because without them, you're not, re- you're not going to have that surplus value regardless to take. And right. I, I use that term, the, the term take very specifically because, you know, when you're the decision maker, what to do with that surplus, you know, that that's a moral question. It's not a capitalist question. It's a moral question. Um, and that's how it should be framed in the future is, you know, sure. Yes. Jeff Bezos has worked the, from the ground up, worked extreme, extremely long hours to build an online bookstore that turned into the largest online marketplace in the world. But does that mean he needs to be the richest man in the world in that same sense? Right. Well, Um, and I I think, right, Jeff Bezos, one could make a good faith argument that, yes, Jeff Bezos in his lifetime did accrue that income. But again, if we look at the other side of the coin, we can we can look at the countless millionaires and billionaires who have never worked a day in their life and earned extrapolated tons of money away from this system just in investments alone. Um, right. So in that case, that money is in no way involved in the American economy other than to go to the stock market and then back in their pocket. Right. And it, and it seems like it's a very coordinated effort because like one of the one of the more strong arguments that come out of it is like, oh, he's paid. He pays himself eighty thousand dollars a year and the rest is all shareholder value. Well, yeah. And then you take then you take a look at the profit loss statements for Amazon and find out that those profits are driving shareholder agreements that boost up the, the cost of the share so he's getting a value no matter what because he owns a lot of the shares in amazon um and you know it's it's kind of making it to the point because i just read that he has a super yacht the yes. word yacht should not need the word super in front of it <laughs> <laughs> the yacht is yeah the word yacht is enough yes mm-hmm. yes the word yacht is like i can understand the need for a yacht for someone who to live a lavish life okay if that's how you want to spend that level of money but a super yacht is another thing mm-hmm. that thing is as I, I heard it's as long as the statue of liberty is tall i would believe that. i believe i've read something along the lines of that super yacht has a, another yacht along right. with it so it, yeah. like it needs its own yacht and i think Absolutely. that's kind of that 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 that's kind of what i call gross capitalism because if your own yacht needs its own yacht, there's a problem. Right. Um, <laughs> and I think with Bezos as well, um, the, the financial implications are one thing and, and how he is choosing to treat his workers at a factory level, which if folks don't know about the heat sensing cameras that he installs in, in the facilities, and if folks don't know about the security positions that he's hired for people to strategically um, union bust and strategically watch other workers to try and find air quotes bottlenecks to make things more efficient. 
Um, you should read up on that. But another thing that I've learned about recently, and this kind of goes along with the conversation about making DC a state, um, you know, it was very strategic for Amazon to choose to build their next headquarters outside of DC. And based on the amount of political capital that they are now spending in the area, if DC made a state, I, I read something that said that the Amazon lobby would be the largest lobby in DC. So then we're arguably creating an Amazon state. Right. Which again, and, I think there's a lot of nuance <laughs> that I'm leaving out there. So I do not want to sound totally ignorant, but <laughs> that's just an angle. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's, I, I think that's kind of at a point where is there a limit to what corporations can do in their own existence is at what point do they become, you know, a governing body themselves in, in competition with what we already have established? Um, you go down the list there, right? Colonial pipeline, BP gas, um, even these Pfizer vaccines, right? I mean, the, the, the taxpayers paid to create a vaccine that the corporate company is, you know, the private company is now saying, we don't want to share the patent for this. I mean, there's the, the amount of discrepancy is insane. Yeah, and like that that alone, the, the vaccine patents is pretty much an issue that we're going to have to keep pushing for, uh, you know, just for the good efforts to save the global south as well, because they're like I've seen maps and, you know, there there's countries that probably won't get the vaccine until 2024. And that's a tragedy specifically because of the vaccine patents. Absolutely. Um, and it should be noted that there are a number of countries, India is getting the most press right now because of a lack of vaccine presence, but there are a number of companies that have not administered a single dose. Right. And, you know, that that's when you have medicine that's funded by taxpayers, that's, that's a huge problem when it comes to things like this, because, you know, who, what are you actually trying to save? your profits and your bottom line? Or are you trying to save the good of the world? And like I say this consistently is like, if you don't have a citizenship to work off of, you don't have a customer base. Mm-hmm. If everyone's dead because they got COVID-19 and they died from complications because of COVID-19, you know, you're, you're losing out in that sense. And I, I question why that hasn't been part of their conversation of just at what, like, why is money so important to people over the cost of lives? Right. And I, I, one thing I have heard people much smarter than me say is that you would think the ultimate capitalist thing to do would be to extend vaccines to countries like this and extend some of the technology to, to countries like India that are emerging. So A, they can get up to speed as quickly as possible, but more importantly, they can get up to speed without consequence to the environment, right? If, right. if we never had to create film and we could jump straight to digital cameras, think about the, the tax on the environment that just doesn't ever need to happen. So um, right. left or right, if you care about the environment and you care about capitalism, there's a marriage here to happen. Right. I feel, I feel like I could be a podcast episode all its own just with how crazy that is. Like <laughs> the, yeah. the amount of podcasts that I've listened to just essentially based on that alone is, you know, a, a sight to behold. Um, but yeah, I guess to bring that, into the void <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it at this point because it's just like without public pressure you can't make change happen right um so speaking but, of change though yeah you're running for congress so tell me what what drove you to do this why not a local office so <laughs> I, I guess that came part of the inventory that i had to take in deciding what office to run for um 
because it, it became a matter of, you know, what's too soon, what's too late. Um, because I wasn't thinking about this until like the start of January and the like late December, early January. Um, so I looked at it and I saw that, you know, city, city council, there were already people that were running and I was already being represented by somebody I was okay with. Um, cause I live in ward eight and even wards go, it go on elections in even years. So it would have been a good minute before I'd even get the chance to run for it. Um, and then state legislature, the general assembly, uh, both of my, both my Senate and my, uh, representative seats weren't up until 2023 and 2024 respectively. So it was a little too far. Um, and then, you know, Congress just hit that sweet spot. Uh, the house of representatives hit that sweet spot because, you know, it runs every two years. It's probably a, it like, I'm not, like, I'm going to preface this. I'm going to full disclosure. I'm not running to do this race for, for the power, the personal power. I I'm doing this race because there's a lot of voices that go unheard that we don't have, um, you know, the, the power that we need in Congress as a block to make changes to the efforts of what we need to do. Um, so adding to that is a reason of why I'm running because, you know, I personally believe I have that conviction to make that work, to be a part of that change, like introducing bills that are going unheard and, you know, that affect the change that we need to see. Um, so that that really made the, the the decision for me in which office I wanted to run for because sure you can do a lot of the things that are on my platform at you know a state and local level but there's different kinds of minutiae that you have to deal with outside of the policy um, and I think that's something that is a really interesting piece of the conversation that we can get into later um, about how changes on Congress's level can affect multiple districts at the same time. Um, so, I mean, like, we, we need that power in Congress to affect the change across the country, because it's one, it's great, and it's one thing to do that change on the state and local level, but, you know, there's other people that also need that change as well. Um, and yeah, I think and that's just something that we're A little bit about, you know, you mentioned a block of progressives, right? And yeah. so, I mean, I think we should... If we're going to appease the cynical progressives in the crowd listening, um, I think we should talk a little bit about like the current progressive representation we have, because a right. lot of a lot of people feel like there's shortcomings with what they ran on versus what they're voting on. So right. it, it is the thought then we want to continue to increase the amount of progressives in Congress so that we can just make this voice louder and louder and that there's a less risk that people like AOC, like the squad, um, are going to get consumed by the Democratic majority. Yeah, and that, I think that's a, a larger part of the, the conversation um, in, in multiple ways, because I, I'm sure as many people know, as very, very well as many progressives know, is that a lot of people who have a D or an R next to their name tend to be controlled entirely by what, who's donating their campaign. Um, so like there, there's literally people who will vote no on something that goes against the fossil fuel industry, and then they'll receive, you know, a six digit sum in their campaign account the next day. Um, and that, that's a huge part of campaign finance reform that, you know, we need to take care of because I don't believe corporations are people in that, right? Mm -hmm. So 
we kind of have to work with that. Um, but aside from that, back back to the thought of the block is that, you know, we can't trust that we people are only as good as their word in that sense. Because sure, we can get someone to say, yes, I will do it. But then we have to make them face the consequence if they don't do it. Um, and that, I don't mean like consequence and like, oh, like shun them from the city, yada, yada, yada. I mean, like if... If I get my representative, if for God willing, hell freezes over, I get Darren LaHood to co-sponsor Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All bill. Like that would be hell freezes over. Um, because he, he's ta he takes money from the health insurance industry mm -hmm. and lots of it. Um, so he, he most likely never co-sponsored it. Um, and then there's people like me who would freaking reintroduce that legislation over and over and over again in every session possible until yeah. it passes. Because I, I think the, the strategy there is you have to keep the conversation going so that the conversation can keep going. Because it, it's not gonna get anywhere if no one's talking about it. And you know, you don't get those opportunities to open up when you talk to your neighbors and say, you know, this person is dealing with medical bills and that's the number one thing. They're very close to bankruptcy because they can't afford to pay it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and then you get people like Darren LaHood who takes money from the insurance industry is like, and he's paid to be against that. And that's a problem. And, yeah, and, and I'll be honest, I don't know. I've, I've, I've seen Darren LaHood speak once, but I also think Darren LaHood represents a type of political class that, um, that you know, it, for example, infrastructure came up on Twitter and I found myself commenting something along the lines, well, the majority of our politicians don't even drive cars, right? Like they right. may drive in a car or in a plane, but, but the, right, the, the, they are so disconnected from our everyday world. And, and I think that's what's become so toxic about like this polarization in politics is that, yes, this is a Republican area. But if you look at what Republicans say they stand for in the press conferences, it absolutely in no way is represented in policy. And I think the, 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 the increasing number of deaths from despair that we're seeing in these, you know, seeing documented in, in the HBO Sackler documentary, uh, this is increasing and it's increasing in our areas. So to me, healthcare is the single most important issue of my lifetime. That, right. Say that. And I, I guess we can tie that into the, the force of the vote conversation about, you know, even withholding votes for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, so let me just give a quick, quick summarization for, for yeah. the audience here. Okay, um, as back when Pelosi was up for her speakership position, um, there was a uh, an attempted coup <laughs> in the uh, in the in the poll in the with the squad for all progressives to withhold their vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker uh, until she would bring a floor vote on Medicare for all. Uh, as you said, the intent was not to win. Medicare for all. The intent was to bring the conversation up and to make clear which Democratic politicians would accept this legislation on paper and sign it, right? And say, yeah, we're backing right. it. And then when it came to actually voting for it, they we wanted to know who was on the line. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that that that's the level of accountability that you know has to be taken care of within our representation because, you know, as I say, people are only as good as their word. And you know the vote and the power in the vote that they send out is what's actually going to matter at the end of the day, because if they tell us yes and they vote no, that's a problem, um, and that's a matter of conviction. Because 
you know, you have to trust the people you're electing into office. Um, it shouldn't be that, you know, you have to sit there and watch what your representative is doing every single day and being like, he's not representing my interests. He's not representing my interests. He's not representing my interests. Um, and, you know, that's how, you, how in most cases that I've had to feel about the people who represent me on just about every level at this point. Because um, like, even for McLean County, I, I went to a special meeting last night where they voted on whether or not to decrease the amount of districts for the county. Right. Luckily, <laughs> the, board, the board voted um, 17 to three in favor of maintaining the 10 districts and two representatives per. Um, like local elections matter, like even down to the city council, down to your, your school board. I'm going to a meeting tonight, which, you know, isn't going to be relevant to when people start listening to this podcast, but like, I'm going to a meeting tonight to, you know, help save the fine arts, um, you know, choices that students have at the middle school here, because that's something that's important to me. Like I, a lot of the things like, so I guess another part of the conversation we can get into is like, I, I, because of the timing that I started uh, being involved in politics, as well as deciding when to start this campaign, I, I, I kind of have to set this out in, in the open air to say that there are things that I'm not doing for political motivations. They, they are things that are community motivations for me. So like me going to McLean County's board meeting to help support maintaining you know, 10 districts and two representatives, that's not, a, that's not politically motivated to help my campaign. That's me as a community member being concerned. Me going to the school board meeting to talk about, you know, the election choices, elective choices that, you know, students have, that's not a political motivation. That's me being a community member that's concerned. Um, so I, I need to make it a point to, you know, have that clear as day because, at the end of the day, I'm not trying to seek political power with this. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, I think there's a, there's a recent book that came out that's something along the lines of like, if not you, then who, right? And, exactly. and I think this is the progressive moment that we're seeing right now. Every single citizen has an obligation to be active at a local level, as you described. Um, and, and no, not everyone's doing that. And I can even say that I'm guilty myself of, of not doing it enough. Um, but this idea of changing things at a national level requires thousands of Michael Swansons. Um, we need to flood the ballots. We need to, you know what I mean? We need, we need to continue to air the grievances that we have with large PACs. We need to right. continue to say things like, Michael Bloomberg ran for president for four, four months, paid $1 billion, and then stiffed all of his own staff. Right. right. <laughs> like we this is the progressive moment that we're living in right now. So so, yes, pr preach on that. That is you are on point there. Mm -hmm. that, so thank you. Um, <laughs> like not like not to like toot my own horn in that same sense, but it's just like that that comes with a huge uh, burden when it comes to you know, choosing to be a grassroots movement, because it's the right thing to do is you're relying on the power of the community and what people are you know within their generosity of giving. Um, cause like sometimes in interactions that I have on Twitter, people will still donate to the campaign cause it just happened today. Like I hadn't interacted with a person before, but one showed up in my inbox and I was like, okay, cool. So somebody liked what I said. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's people like 
obviously support for politicians and elected officials tends to be like a spectrum of people who don't like one side's like, oh, I'd rather not be involved. And there's people like where I wish everybody could be is like, you know, breathing down their politician elected officials necks right. about what they're doing to represent them. Um, and I've had these conversations before when like, I, I've had to sit down and do call time lists. Like I've had one conversation where someone grilled me on uh, like certain tax implications for like international tax shelters and how we bring that money back home. It's just like, that's a lot of research that one person has to do to make an answer that's actually worthy of someone's investment. I wish people would grill candidates more like it in that same sense, because, you know, there, there's a level to that where you can't deal with just the platitudes. There are people that do are, are just okay in their political involvement of saying, or getting the ideas of the platform and saying like, oh, do you like, what are you filed as? Okay, that's that's gate one to get through. Now, what do you support? Mm -hmm. Like, I support Medicare for all. Great. Okay, that's another gate to get through. <laughs> um, you know, every every single person is individually uh, on their own choice of how they represent, how they choose uh, who they want to represent them. And I think that's perfectly valid um, in this electoral system. Um, I don't know if we just if I just shun the conversation into left field here, but. <laughs> No, I don't um, think I, I think what you're bringing up is important. I think in a time when it's so polarized, right, it, right. It, everything becomes a gotcha moment. Um, let's be frank. We have a reality television star who was our president, who knew nothing uh, about most of the policies that local people are getting grilled on in detail. And I think what we find, especially in the age of Twitter, is that everyone has a torch to bear. And if right. you come across that particular person and you don't have enough nuance to your answer about a particular international finance policy, they've disqualified you from, from conversation. When in reality, I think what we need to be asking at, at your level is what's deficient right now? Because on the left and right, nobody's moving anywhere on healthcare. So right. if you want to move on healthcare, you got to start thinking of different options. You got to start breaking this kind of duopoly of, of, of politics. So, so right. if I can continue to, to kind of change the subject a little bit, I want to talk about um, outreach and I want to talk about, um, you know, your, your grassroots movement. You talked a little bit about that. What I, you're active on Twitter, you're meeting people, you're expanding your audience on Twitter actively. What are you doing to get the word out? What's it, what's a date? What's a weekly routine look like for you? So the, right now, because because of the timeline of how uh, this election cycle is going to go, a lot of it's really based on fundraising right now. Because you know, without the power of the war of the coffers, there's not a lot of effort that can be done outside of you know me paying for my electricity bill and my internet bill for me to sit on my computer and you know just do the social media. Because so it, in this context, social media is free. Uh, air quotes free. Um, like I, I can sit on Twitter as much as I want to get the word out and say, hey, uh, I'm running in this district in Illinois as a progressive. Um, and, and I think that's kind of like one part of the strategy is like right now, because it's cost effective, social media is a great way for me to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then second is just me getting more involved here locally in the community so that people know like I care about the same issues in that same way, like regardless of the campaign, I care about these issues. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's kind of going to be a challenge for me here later on is, you know, finding 
or, or choosing certain events when those conflicts come up. Um, Cause like there was a protest going on for uh, police reform at the same time this McLean County board meeting was going on. Uh, both are, both are important and, you know, are issues that I care about. Um, and, you know, where, where I find my, my corporeal support and my body is um, going to be a challenge for me to determine. Um, but with that, at the same time, they're like, as we've seen with the candidates that we've pushed with the People First Coalition, like I, I spent a lot of time canvassing for them because it's a matter that, you know, is super important to me because they're people I wanted to see represent on the council as well as in the mayoral seat. Um, no, no shade in Boca or uh, Mike Strays on that one, but, <laughs> um, you know, that getting the word out in a certain way is like, there's some things that can be advantageous and there's some things that, you know, I'll, I'll have to stand ready to defend and, you know, you have to make that decision. And I think that comes down to when I talk to people about, Oh, like, what have you done in the community is like, well, I've been to these protests and, you know, I, I've been there to support in certain vigils that, you know, were put on by, by students at ISU and, you know, at, like that, that's kind of where it gets, further into, um, you know, the reliance on the campaign to, like, we, we can get into campaign finance reform in the sense of, like, how campaign candidates are able to get paid and, you know, spend more time focused 100% on the campaign, which, oh, gosh, <laughs> that's a rabbit hole. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so let me ask you a question, if I can change the subject a little bit. Um, you were at the, you were at the, the board vote yesterday. Right. Do we win by like, so I know Elizabeth Johnson put out a 20 district uh, idea that was ruled, I think they said it was unconstitutional or something. Again, I don't know the details of that, but I guess I'm asking as a person on the left, um, obviously the Republicans wanted to cut it down to a smaller amount of districts. That's advantageous for them. Um, but it's, it seems like on the Democratic side, we end up compromising a lot. And it seems right. like, it seems like 10 is being viewed as a win. But is 10 a win? Honestly, I, I think in like, it, it can be a challenge. So mm -hmm. at least on this scale, it can be a challenge because especially with what the, the Republicans on the board were wanting to do with the districts because they wanted to provide more representation for rural residents of the county, which is a fine thing to think. Um, but and the, you can't. the cynical view of that would be what they are trying to do is include more rural right-leaning voters in broader districts to, you know, dilute the pool a little bit. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm like, no, no, no disrespect to people who live in rural areas at all, but you know, no. if you want to give them more representation, make more districts, don't lessen the districts Yes. because you know, that, that kind of, you, you're really making a, a bad faith argument and trying to say that, you know, there's not enough of it when you, you very well know it's going to dilute the power of one side. Mm -hmm. And the, the partisan politics, like from either side is pretty atrocious in, in that same right, because, you know, you have to put city over party, you have to put county over party, you have to put state over party and country over party. 
when you're an elected official, you have to be concerned about what's good for the citizens and not what's good for your own pocketbook. Right. Well, and if there ever was a, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm truly motivated by someone like Killer Mike who advocates for um, local activism, because I agree with what you said right there. If we could throw away this partisan, this, these, this national partisan influence, we can make some real progress in this area. And I believe McLean County could be a shining example for an, a, a community that says no to things like bad cannabis licenses and says, we're going to carve our own path. And, and that will right. require, um, you know, that will require some collaboration. Yeah, and I, I think this would probably be a good moment to plug in something that's extremely crucial to making that happen, which is ranked choice voting. Yay! Um, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I have a whole celebration for it. Um, so right now in, in the Illinois General Assembly, in the Senate chamber, Senate Bill 1785 is the ranked choice voting bill. And as far as I'm aware at this moment, it's still sitting and waiting for a hearing on, on the executive committee. Um, so to anyone that's listening to this episode right now, I, I implore you if it hasn't moved at all since then, one, feel ashamed in your representatives, and two, call Don Harmon's office. <laughs> uh, Don Harmon's the Senate president. He's the one who's in charge of ensuring that bills get to uh, the committees they need for their hearings. Uh, we will leave choice voting contact information in the show notes. Um, he's yeah. probably proved contact information. Sorry, we're not going to do any weird sleuthing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so ranked choice voting is going to be something that, you know, can help fix this problem because, you know, then you're not running campaigns that are completely partisan and slandering towards your opponents. You're more focused on the ideas of what's going to actually fix, you know, the, the localities issues of what you're running for. Um, and luckily the bill that's it, that's waiting hearing right now will include all the way up through president, including my own race. Um, and I think that's going to be a huge benefit for the people of Illinois, because then they can actually vote with their conscience, as well as their vote not being lost because their, their opponent, lost, their candidate that they supported lost. Because um, that, that's just how the system is right now. It's like, if, you're, if, you're, if your candidate loses, then your vote's pretty much lost in that same sense, because it, it balanced the vote of the opponent. Um, Whereas in ranked choice voting, areas, we do have areas where ranked choice voting is enacted right now, right? Right. Um, so there are a few states. I believe Maine is one of them. Uh, they've been at the forefront of it, and I know that New York City also just started their their mayoral race is going to be the first election in their city history for ranked choice voting. Um, so it, it's growing. It's a growing idea and a movement to you know help change you know the political landscape that we have where you know third parties can actually get the support that they need mm -hmm. and not and people can file and run as whatever party that they want because that's a, that's a huge issue that's really holding me back right now is that you know i had to file as a democrat in a way to help get access to uh systems and platforms and software that i would need to help run the campaign Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the free market of ideas, sure, that if you want a certain party, person who's filed as a certain party to use your software, then fine, there's other options that I can go to. Um, but that, that's just in the larger context of, you know, how bad the duopoly has on us. Um, but, 
we have to like as the left as as the left wing to this country we have to um you know unite in that right because if we don't if we don't combine ourselves to at least get to where we need to be and start the conversations that we have to start having we can't do that by letting people who won't have those conversations win mm-hmm. because they don't care right. they really don't because you know the people that are giving them the money to help on their re-election campaign is where they actually matter like i i would rather spend my time calling people and you know asking for the support in that regard than you know calling companies and saying because that's the easy way out getting getting money from companies is the easy way out and you know it's hard work it really is and it's a change we, it we got to commit to change yeah and so along the same lines of change let me ask there was a quote i heard and i'm doing a bad job here uh it was a member of the squad who was reflecting on the vote for the $15 minimum wage. And they said something along the lines of, when we go into the ballot box, we're all individuals. And now that's something that they took a lot of heat on Twitter for because because the progressives believe their only strength is to vote as a block. So if if voted into Congress, how do you start to have those sort of conversations? Is Should progressives be in lockstep on some of these things? I mean, not, obviously not everything, um, but on the broader issues, if we want to move the ball on the $15 minimum wage, it feels like we need to be in lockstep. It feels like we need to make a lot of noise. You're right. And I, I, I'm in full agreement with that because that that's a struggle that's being faced is like a lot of the people who are in the progressive caucus are being strong-armed by the Democratic Party to you know, be in lockstep with them first and, you know, be in lockstep with Nancy Pelosi to ensure that they get the committee assignments and stay on the committees that they want to be on. Um, And I think that's detestable, honestly, because... And we shouldn't, we shouldn't undermine how important these committee positions are to a young politician, um, someone who's just been voted into Congress. If they don't get chosen onto any committees, the likelihood that they'll remain relevant in the party, that, you know, their, their reelection chances go down. So these committees are huge. Right, exactly. Um, But like, I think that's still withstanding the fact that, you know, if I got put on a committee that had nothing to do with my interests, I can still introduce bills and testify at the committees where that becomes, you know, relevant. So like if I get on a committee that doesn't deal with labor and I can still introduce a bill to help raise the minimum wage, I can introduce a bill for healthcare and Medicare for all universal healthcare system and testify on a health committee. Um, like there, there's that opportunity is like, I don't know exactly from what I've seen, I don't know exactly what the holdup is because like, I, I get that Congress is busy. They start their days at 10 a.m. and they can go on as long as that day allows. But I don't know what the holdup is because there's so much work that can be done that, you know, they're not focusing on that, you know, there, there's people that are homeless right now in the wealthiest country in the world, there's people that are homeless. Like there's people that are struggling to get by that are facing eviction from their homes. There's people that can't pay their utility bills and are facing shutoffs that, you know, we have to make campaigns specifically to the Illinois Commerce Commission just to get Amherst to not have these shutoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it's, Flint, Flint, Michigan still has poison water. <laughs> right, exactly. Like Flint, Michigan, other like, 
tribal nations even have poison water and don't have necessary systems they need to help support their communities that we've taken from them. I, like I will show my support for indigenous communities. Um, but there's so many problems that are, are affecting everyday American people. And it's just like, why are we worried about renaming a post office? Yeah. Right. And on the flip side of the coin, why are folks who are running for office like I mean, and I'll just I'll just throw the Caitlyn Jenner name out there because she made a splash with her her interview on Hannity. Right. Her, mm. her perception of the homeless problem in California is that the people in the airplane hangars, the people with have private airplanes are most impacted by the homelessness problem. And, and, and I'm sorry, but that sort of tone deafness just illustrates how far removed these people are from our everyday world. Not, not to mention that that interview was taken in her hangar. <laughs> she did <laughs> to say, offer to take Hannity on a plane ride, too. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's just like, I, I don't get how you look at the problem and realize that it, it's because your friends don't want to see it. Like, that's what leads to anti-homeless hostile architecture, like putting armrests on benches every three feet. That, that's the anti-hostile architecture that puts spikes under like awnings and coverings that homeless people would sleep under to protect themselves from the elements and it's just like why are we spent why are we spending our time doing that like why are we investing in anti-homeless architecture when we should be investing in services that prevent homelessness absolutely <laughs> absolutely and i think when you think about services that could you know that could prevent homelessness I think we think about labor and I think we think you, know, you hit it right on the head, different, different countries, different people, different states, different cities have different opinions about labor. Each person in the labor market is looking to extract a different type of value. There are so many people who are not happy in their jobs and we just choose to ignore that. And then if right. we looked at healthcare and if we started to think about the mental health problem that is absolutely you know, just destroying the homeless population, no, they don't choose to be on the street talking to themselves, you know, laying in 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 garbage, right? Like right. they are there because there's something tremendously wrong with them. And these people are Americans. These people have been offered the same exact American dream as Jeff Bezos. So we need to help lift them up. Right, exactly. And it's just like, why why are we spending so much time like worrying about providing tax cuts for the rich and trickle-down economics that hasn't worked in 50 years? Right. It hasn't worked in 50 years and we're still trying to push it. Absolutely. Like we, we found in 2017 that, you know, we gave these tax cuts to Walmart and Amazon and they ended up laying off their workforce. Mm -hmm. we're, we're like, I don't know how to make that any clearer to people that tax cuts for wealthy companies that don't need it don't work for us. Right. And major like, corporations like Dollar General are now strategically opening stores in rural counties like Bloomington normal area and they are killing local grocery stores right like the the problems right. that we saw with Walmart 20 years ago when they started to take over all of the mom and pop groceries those haven't gone away and now right, we exactly. just have more businesses that are capitalizing on the same kind of crony operation model right and it's just like at, at what point is is there a stoppage to this because what why do we keep like it circles back to why are we putting profits over people right like you, as a company sure you have a right to some reasonable level of profits from the work that your organization produces but at the same time are your people taken care of 
Mm-hmm. Do they come into work worrying about what's going on off outside of their home, like outside of the job? Like when you when your worker clocks in, are they worried about what's going on at home and can't focus properly on doing the job ahead of them? Right. Um, like that was a huge problem for me when I worked at Walmart because it was just like, you know, I'm spending all this time working for a wage that's not paying me enough to actually do anything when I get off the clock. It's paying just enough for me to take care of my bills. Like right. I, I, I'm on SNAP, I'm on Medicaid. And like, that's a whole nother conversation in itself that, you know, Walmart is one of the biggest takers in corporate welfare. If you want to be concerned about welfare, be concerned about corporate welfare. That's where the majority of your taxes go. Right. Like it's dumb, <laughs> plain and simple. It's, it really it's is. absolutely atrocious to that, to that regard that, you know, we, we allow subsidies to these companies in certain ways that allows them to pay wages that don't meet the necessary standard of living. Like I get that people who have a standard of living in California is different from people who have a standard of living in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, that's a fine concept because, you know, there's some truth to that. Um, but at the same time, the, the cost of pro- like productivity has not kept up with where the wage has been. So it, it, if we were to enact a minimum wage that kept up with the cost of production, we'd be looking at close to 30 hours, $30 an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, just for work now. Yeah. And this is the thing that confounds me the most about, about this sort of corporate welfare issue is, is on the right people are unshakable, right? And, and, mm. and so I've, I've stepped in it with some folks locally because I take real issue with farm subsidies. And, and yes, I know they're necessary to, to provide a product, but how much of our product gets shipped overseas and how much of this product is made into you know, sugars and corn syrups that are poisoning people in our country. And, and I don't mean poison in the literal sense, but right, like the, the health ramifications for the way we grow, produce and you know, package our food it's starting to catch up with us. And so what's, but what's always kind of interesting to me is that the people who the Fox news crowd, I'll just say it right. Mm-hmm. They, that, that oppose the left just for being the left. They won't even, they won't even show any attention to these conversations. So right. how do you, as a person who's running for office, how do you convince someone? And, it, and I know you're online, so it's like a one by one convincing. So <laughs> what does that process look like? That. And that's a very good question because, you know, that that's part of the strategy in having these conversations with people is because there's some people who only work in bad faith and there's people that genuinely want to learn. And those are the people that are really good to tap into because there's a point where you can meet them. So take Medicare for, for all, for example, and, you know, you meet someone that says, oh, I'm worried about small business, my small business being able to operate because, you know, I... I have these obligations to pay when I have employees. Well, yeah, that, that's a cost of doing business. And then you introduce the Medicare for all concept because as we know, a lot of corporations end up having to pay healthcare premiums for like their group plans that they do. Take Medicare for all, take universal healthcare. That, that obligation goes away. <laughs> Because yeah, now you hear about small business, one of the number one reasons people are not opening small businesses is because they know they're going to have to figure out their own healthcare. Exactly. Right there. And you know? like that, that's a huge problem as to also why people aren't being entrepreneurs more because they can't afford to take that risk 
when they're going to have uncertainty about whether or not they can afford the cost of a healthcare bill. Um, like that's, that's a huge reason of why I've avoided the hospital in the past too. It's like, until that's it became an actual problem, like it's something that I can deal with because I don't have the finances and means to do so. Right. Um, yeah, like and we've had conversations on here with, and this is where I, like I, you talked about military early. So I wanted to make a joke and preface, you know, your, your support of the troops, right? Right. <laughs> it's a big issue. You got to support the troops. Uh, but, but my, my, you're, you're hitting on it right on the nose with healthcare, right? We've got our most, our, you know, the, the people we care most about, the military comes back from military a lot of times to subpar care. And a lot of mm -hmm. times they've got issues that they're not even getting care for. And then you think about entrepreneurs who, if you care about small business, the reason they're not starting small businesses is because they can't have healthcare, right? right? What else do you care about? You care about immigration. Well, did you know that our healthcare costs are through the roof because immigrants are taking their, their, their children to the emergency room because they can't find any sort of medical help. Uh, right. Again, kind of, Coming back to that idea of capitalism, I see it's so much opportunity in saying, yeah, we'll provide healthcare. Yeah, we'll provide immigration. And we're going to do it in a way that everybody makes money. Like it, right. it, it's anti-American to me. At a certain <laughs> <point>. <laughs> it's like, I, I think, I think a huge concept as well is like how people deal with uh, the free market concept of like Medicare for all and universal healthcare can resolve that issue and create a free market system for the healthcare industry. Because no longer does your money have to go into a million different risk pools based on which health insurance plan you choose. You don't mm -hmm. have to worry about the deductible. Um, like now, now you can go and choose like, oh, you didn't get very good treatment at Carl Broman. Okay, well, you can go over to this hospital instead. And that people say is much better. Okay, cool. Carl Broman just lost a customer. <laughs> right. Like, and, and I also think that we should dispute the claim that less people will go into medicine as a result of universal healthcare. There is, there is zero evidence that will support that. Right. I think a lot of people tend to choose their career based off of life passions. Like if you want to help, like people are choose to be a veteran veterinarian because they enjoy helping animals. That's a great cause. That's a great passion. People, you want to help make people better in a healthcare sense and you want to be, go be a doctor fantastic we we should provide the systems that you know we're already paying for like we should improve those systems so that you can go do that thing and you can be who you want instead of having to go work these jobs where you're not getting paid enough to you know try to supplement and afford the ability to have that dream um because like the i'm pretty sure the metric of what i've heard is people in the 1970s only had to work a few hundred hours to be able to afford college tuition. Now you have to work a few thousand <laughs> just to do the same. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I feel, I feel hypocritical because I went through an undergraduate and graduate program and now sit in a position where I don't exactly use my degree. And I'm a bit mm -hmm. cynical about um, the experience that I went through. And I'm, I'm very protective for my own children saying, well, all the problems that we've pointed out with the institution 10, 15 years ago haven't really been fixed. Right. Uh, so, so I think a lot about progress. Let me ask you a question about healthcare then. Mm -hmm. Best case scenario, how long do you think it would take us as a country to adopt universal healthcare? Because I think that is one thing that is 
is misstated rather often, right? Because right. what Fox News will tell you is they're going to shut off your health care. You're not going to have a doctor. The doors are going to shut and you're just going to have to figure it out when that's absolutely not the truth. Right. And I think that comes back to, at least in my understanding of how the healthcare system works, which is triage. Like mm -hmm. if you, if in, a, in, a, in Canada, if you go to Canada and your arm gets chopped off and you go to an emergency room, they're going to treat you immediately because you have a higher risk of death because you got your arm chopped off and you have open arteries. Like if you're going because you have a cold, you're not going to be seen as quickly because, you know, you're, you're a low risk patient, like probably shouldn't be sitting in the waiting room because you have a cold and might spread it, but you know, wear a mask. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, you know, the, the system of triage is kind of what changes that effect because you have to realize like if your life is in danger the hospital will try to take care of you the best that they can that's how it works now in the system that we have because that's why we have ambulances like you get shot on a street an ambulance comes picks you up and takes you to the hospital you immediately get treated versus going to an urgent care with a cold and you know getting a diagnosis for bronchitis like it's two separate ends of the spectrum that you know is being exacerbated in the wrong sense and for bad reasons. Um, like, I, I, don't, I don't think there's room to be concerned about whether or not you can get treatment when you have to take your own inventory of like, well, what's your health, what, what, what has your personal health been like previously? Like for me personally, like I, I didn't have very many medical problems within the past few years, I'd probably be okay. Mm -hmm. Like I'd rather pay, I'd rather pay the more mountain taxes to, you know, have the safety net of making sure that, you know, I can go to the hospital when I need to and not have to worry about the bill afterwards. Right. Um, like I could get prescriptions that will actually not have me cost ration them. Right. Um, like there's diabetes, right? I mean, this right. is not type two diabetes is different, but type two, type one diabetes is not something that people go out and catch. Right. <laughs> They're not like, aspiring to that. <laughs> And it sucks, you know, it really sucks having to hear stories of people who have diabetes and they're rationing their insulin just to get by until they can afford their next round of doses. Yeah. Um, Cause like, I know, I know one candidate in Ohio has that specifically. And, you know, that's part of who he is, is that he's had to ration his insulin before. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a tragedy. When you think about it on a human level, that feels like a tragedy when nice. it like it, it, especially when you have to consider that like people who live up in the Northeast and closer to the Canadian border will specifically travel across the border to go to a pharmacy in Canada to get their insulin because it's cheaper. Um, and it's stupid. <laughs> it, no, it's, it, again, it's, it's one of the problems that's just, all these things are so intertwined right now. You, you would think as a country, it would be more difficult for us to have a left and a right because these problems, when you, when you look at them objectively, they, they hurt everyone. They really they do. do. All, all ages, all races, all demographics are negatively impacted by our inability to help each other as a country. Um, right. Infrastructure becomes a physical example of that. But again, I, I, I can't speak enough about healthcare because if we can give anything to the next generation, if we could figure this out, that would change the course of the world because we're right. going to continue to automate and we should not stop automation for the sake of people working $10 an hour jobs, right? right. Like we, we should be, and I, and I was 
early in his career, I was very drawn to someone like Andrew Yang, who talked a lot about quality of life outside of employment and what opportunities might open up for people if they just had a little bit more financial and medical stability. Um, It it astonishes me that people cannot see the forest through the trees of issues like that. Yeah, and I think Andrew Andrew Yang's an interesting concept, especially with universal basic income. Um, because as far as I understand it, it, it was meant to prevent, pre- it was meant to replace, uh, you know, parts of the social safety net in exchange for the direct cash value. Mm-hmm. Um, and my only reservation with that is I want to make sure that healthcare is actually implemented in a way that is accessible to all without regard to cost. So having a universal healthcare system could help empower a thing like UBI because now that money is not going directly to paying healthcare expenses. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's been the knock on him in New York, especially as he's just come out and say that that $2,000 is going to go to $1,000 a month and it's going to come directly out of social safety net programs. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's a level of transparency that a lot of politicians need to keep on like the forefront of who they are. Because if you say, hey, like if you start that conversation and say, you know, I, I know that you're on SNAP, which is giving you about $500 a month, let's just say, for sake of figures. Yep. Um, and then you come up with this idea and say, in exchange for that $500 a month, why don't I give you a thousand? And, you know, in, in exchange for the temporary assistance for needy families and SNAP, I give you a thousand dollars directly for you to do what you need to to protect your family. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, that I think that's a level of transparency in that way. And having those conversations with, you know, constituents and voters is that you need it. And I think that comes back in circles back to meeting people who are conservatives where they're at, because you need to find that common ground for, you know, what's actually going to directly affect that single person. Because yeah. um, like Republicans talk about tax breaks all day long and they tend to bend things like repealing the estate tax like they bend that to all sorts of hell because that that tax specifically only starts at 11.7 million dollars if you don't have a value of 11.7 million dollars that tax the the repeal of that tax cut's not for you right um it like it doesn't even affect you because you have up until that 11.7 million that's untaxed actually Mm -hmm. um and i think that's just a huge fault in the political system is that the, yeah. these when politicians you think taxes, i think one, one person he's a canadian that i follow on twitter talks a lot about taxing land and i, I think that's a really good point because what you're seeing is people like jeff bezos or not jeff bezos but bill gates is purchasing <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of farmland across the country and we have no real clue what his objective is with all this land and we're right. seeing it here locally in central illinois um, I forget the man's name, but he's from Champaign. Sahid, I believe is his name, just purchased about 17,000 acres across central Illinois of farmland. And I learned that over half of the farmland in central Illinois is rented out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that, I think that's right, going to be interesting. Like, it's going to be interesting to see what, what their plans are for that level of land, because like the United States is a huge country. The fact mm-hmm. that Bill Gates owns the most amount of lands than most any other person in this country like what the heck is he planning not not in a conspiracy sense but like what is his motivation for having this land 
Well, and let's um, be frank, he, he, he was able to fund partially the creation of the vaccine. And, and you know what I mean? Like now he's advocating for the vaccine. Who's to say that he's not going to create some sort of genetically modified crop and then push it on the American people? Um, and again, this is me being a bit conspiratorial, but we give up a certain amount of power. This is why we used to have monopoly laws. Um, you know, there's, there's that book, Break Them Up, which goes into it in, in great detail. So, mm. yeah. yeah. So let yeah, me ask yeah. you a question. Um, this is, we're, we're kind of getting to that hour long time. Um, and, and I, I want you to speak to the group of voters that I think can be most impactful. And I, I don't think this is a left and a right thing. I think this is an age thing. I think everyone below the age of 25, below the age of 30, who is looking and thinking about their future in 20 years should be getting real serious about voting. And, and that right. was one thing that I got a little bit disappointed about in the local elections was that after all the noise that the People First Coalition made, we still kind of hovered around that same voting expectation. We need to get that 50 some percent of, or not 50 some, but the 40 some percent of people who don't vote nationally, how do we get them to the polls? Yeah, that's, that, that's gonna be the interesting one. Um, in, in 2018, in the midterm election, there were 200,000 people in, or roughly 200,000 people in the 18th district that didn't vote. That could have very well changed the outcome of the election. Absolutely. There was about 300,000 people that did vote, but 200,000 that didn't. Um, for whatever reason or another, that they weren't able to, or if they felt disinterested enough, or they didn't have a politician that was able to, or a candidate that was able to speak to what they wanted from their country. Um, people disaffected by the duopoly and the two-party system that made them protest and not vote. Mm -hmm. um, that, like, as a person who is a citizen of this country and you have the right and the ability to vote, that's the most powerful thing that I think you can do is you can vote. You can supply the action that changes the course and the fate of the country based on what you're doing. Um, and, and like it's a very it's a very hard subject to to really breach with because you know it gets into this whole conversation about the candidates that are up for election that can sway whether or not someone votes mm -hmm. the policies of those candidates like i i have it on my website that like i i have this saying that when you vote you're voting for a whole person like you can't just cherry pick the things that you like about a person when you vote for them you're voting for the whole person um so as I say, like in regards to a person like Donald Trump, like you can't disregard the xenophobia, the homophobia, the transphobia that you know his administration put forward just because he's got a good tax policy. Right. Same thing for Joe Biden. You can't disregard anything about what he's done in his Senate career mm -hmm. when you know he's just now coming around to saying things about these progressive policies. Like, right. yes, we do need to raise the minimum wage. Why did it take you 40 years to get to this point? Right. <laughs> um, well, you look at his, 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 uh, his involvement with the, you know, the incarceration system uh, right. and then you look at, you know, top cop at the vice president position who openly said, like, I mean, when you hear some of these quotes, it's, it's, it, it, it almost hurts your soul to, to think right. that these are people who run the show. It's crazy to me. And, and I think that's a huge problem when it comes to, you know, the, the state of how we run our elections, because 
honestly, in most cases, I can't say that I really blame someone who doesn't feel interested in voting for a particular set of candidates. Um, it, like if it made any sense, I probably would have done that in this election, but there were other ballot races that I had to focus on because they were going to affect me. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like I, I get the understanding that some people also don't want to compromise their own principles to vote for somebody that they don't agree with just to even maintain the progress that we make and the progress that we could make building off of whatever that vote leads to. Um, like, I, I'm sure there are people that have voted that also regret regret the person that they voted for. Like, there there's days where I look at things that Joe Biden does and I regret voting for him in that in that instance. I think Joe um, Biden becomes a very interesting example in terms of a turning point for the left, right? And when right. I when I say left, I mean progressives like yourself, right? I, I think we were told get orange man out blue no matter who trust me it'll be fine and now we're all you know we're over 100 days into this thing and we're looking at a very similar world to what we thought we voted out right so i mean a a true benefit like so far has been the coronavirus response and the vaccination response Mm -hmm. like i'm sure we would never have gotten 200 million vaccinations in 100 days if trump was still in office Um, Well, I I can't, I can't even begin to comment on the number of people who said they would never get a vaccine while Trump was in office, who have now gotten a vaccine. (laughs) Right. Those those stories always make me laugh a little bit. (laughs) I think, I think just in the broad general sense of like, over the past five years, like we've seen in action what it takes to get someone to open their eyes to certain uh, factors of what politics is doing to this country. There's people on Twitter who've gotten, who have amassed their own followings because they've switched from being a Trump Republican to being a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that's a bad thing or anything, like good that they've opened their eyes, at least to some cases about what's going on in our country. And I, my message to conservatives in that right is like, we're not doing this in bad faith. We're doing this as a matter of, you know, highlighting the facts of what's happening like we mm-hmm. like it, it's happening direct in our eyes and we can't go based off our our predisposed notions of like oh like we can't submit ourselves to the same idea of like like when it comes to to you know racial injustices of police killings extrajudicial extrajudicial killings we can't just submit to the fact that you know if you've had a prior warrant for something like police aren't supposed to kill guilty people either like unless like unless in the very likely con- like in, in the context that you know you're in a, a fire a firearm standoff you're, you're in a shootout with a criminal okay fine if a bullet hits him and kills him that's a fine killing because you know you're protecting the community and you're protecting yourself in defense that that like that's fine in the conversation of police in, in that situation um but it's not okay in that sense of just like, you can't just kill people because they have a warrant or they drive off away from you and right. evade you. And it, it and creates- those, huge... Yeah, I feel like to those who would make the argument, well, they're a danger to the community if they're evading the police. Right. I think it's like you, then... should look, you should look at the people who used to drive those extremely fast motorcycles and the police would not chase them because right. that was, a, you know, I, I see it as a like issue in a certain way. Like, I, like in, any, in any particular case, like I would love to have a sit-down conversation with people specifically about these kind of conversations in person because it's just like, there's only so much you can do typing away on a phone on Twitter. 
Um, people don't get tonal context. They don't get sincerity. Um, like you can't do that. Like having these conversations in person helps bridge that divide. I feel like, because, you know, you can't run away from a conversation when you're, when it's in person. Right. And, you know, so I, I, I'll kind of open that avenue to anybody who's interested in reaching out to me to have those kinds of conversations. Cause I'd love to do it. Um, because I think that's in a matter of, you know, helping heal our country is actually having these conversations in good faith to, you know, take a look at the issues, look at context and just try to work it out and find the solutions that we can do to move forward in making the society better. Because that, that's what, you know, our government was founded on was working on the issues to you know, actually progress our society. Now, granted, that's 400 years, three, 400 years ago, where <laughs> there's multiple yeah. implications of terrible policies because of, uh, you know, land rights and treaties and everything else. But, yeah. you know, here, here in the 21st century, we've got to, you know, put our best foot forward. Because, you know, 50, 60 years ago, we've been screaming the argument, think of the children, think of the children. Mm-hmm. now the children are grown like it, it's our time to get involved with this because you know i turned 25 in less than five months and yeah. that like constitutional requirement to be a house of representatives um like it's our time at this point because now we're building up to you know take the reins and you know yeah. we have to find out and fight and do whatever we can in our power to help you know, make that a just transition because there's people that are in office now that don't care about what happens to us. They're only cared about what they have left in the rest of their life. Um, And like, especially for something as, as far as like universal healthcare, like we want people to have a good end of life experience. Like, I I think that's a whole conversation in itself, but. Well, and if, if we, if we, as you've said, right, if we, if we reframe the conversation and we stop thinking about what's going to happen in the next five months and we start thinking about what we can do for this country over the next 20 years, I feel, you know, like I, I, I'm always a homer for the world's fair. I love, mm-hmm. I love to think about a point in American history or a point in global history when we, we focused most of our attention on how great the future was going to be. It seems like we're, you know what I mean? We just live in this like, immediacy of you have to you know i have to talk about israel palestine today because that's what's happening in the news and this should be the only thing i worry about and to you know to think about global international politics outside of that one conflict is ignorant right like it's right it's, it's crazy how we how we live in this space so yeah right. well, well let's bring this one home um help the viewers understand so we're going to give the link to your website your email all of your contact information in the show notes um but let me give you the opportunity to end this thing with one last plug um help voters understand who you are and why they should come out and vote for you so i I, i'm here to help make our future a better place and i mean that in the most sincere form of what i just said I can't imagine this a future in society where we're spending billions and billions of dollars on wars that we don't need to be involved in and, you know, hurting the people that are most vulnerable to us that have, you know, put, have been given a check and gave it to the government up to and including their life. You know, when, when veterans come back, I think that we need to do everything that we can to take care of them. I can't imagine a future when, you know, 
a mom is taking two jobs and can't afford childcare to help give her child a better life. I can't imagine that same child not having a good education system to grow up in and learn from to help them become a good citizen of society and help progress the things that we need to progress. Like everything that we do when it comes to voting and who we vote for and what their convictions are and what they want to do in office comes down to that is you have to be concerned about what they want to do, who they're funded by, and ultimately what the end result is going to be from their policies. I can't suggest and I don't want people to listen specifically to one source and take that one source as fact. You have to take every source that you can find and research that makes sense, even the ones that conflict to your views. You know, we're living in the 21st century, and if you're not using those tools, that's that's something that you have to take note of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would really hope that people are able to, you know, see that and, you know, take a look at the platform um, and, and really just get behind the goals of what we're wanting to do. Because at the end of the day, like a lot of these policies affect a lot of who we are and, you know, our class of society. We're, like things that happened to Jeff Bezos aren't happening to me. They're not happening to you either. And mm-hmm. that's something that, you know, we have to change the conversation on. Absolutely. I think that's, that's really well said. Thank you very much. And I, I, yeah, to anyone on the other side of the political aisle who may be seeing a D next to your name, I just want to say in your, in your defense that progressivism is thinking about the future progressivism is is not hyper partisan and i know we throw the tag socialism at it and we throw all this slander at it but the reality is the people who i've met who are running under progressive progressive platform are good-hearted people who as you've just expressed they're genuine they care about the future and this is not about enrichment right exactly Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the time, Michael. Um, as I said, we'll put all your information in the show notes and we look forward to hearing more from you. Um, keep an air out. I'll check in in a few months and see how everything's going. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get it done. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. Have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks. I'm now 17 episodes into this podcast and I'll be honest. Before today, it was starting to feel like it was becoming banal. However, this episode pulled me from the haze I was operating in and ignited the passion I have for change. Michael Swanson is an encouraging candidate because he's willing to think about the consequences of our political action, or to put it more candidly, inaction. He was willing to be critical of the squad while focusing on the need for a block of progressive representatives in Congress. He may not have the type of political background we're used to, but let's be frank, the last thing we want in our political system is more of the same. So here's my pitch. At a time when the path to traditional success is losing significance, find yourself someone like Michael Swanson who isn't afraid to sacrifice their time to support our dreams. To me, Michael is a patriot because he's putting his country before himself, and that should be seen as a big deal. If you would agree our current system is not functioning for most Americans, let's flip the tables on those traditional candidates by offering people like Michael Swanson a spot on the debate podium. If nothing more, I know he won't run from the difficult questions. Best of luck to Michael Swanson. His passion has continued to fuel people like myself, and I believe he should be rewarded for that effort.